This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 6. This is Writing Excuses, Pros and Cons, with Patrick Rothfuss. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dan. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Howard. And I'm Pat. We have Patrick Rothfuss with us again. We're going to talk about prose. This is specifically about writing itself, word for word. How do you make your prose delicious? How do you make your writing as wonderful as it can be? Tasty, tasty sentences with... with flavorful words and <laughs> syllables and and things and crunchy <laughs> and, and we all you know it's a lot easier good, to do when i write it than we when all I, good word do we make you do word good too <laughs> now, now, i'm super excited to have pat on for this episode this is uh uh you have such a reputation for fantastic word for word writing in your in your work do I and actually? I, yes, you do. That you really? absolutely you, do, and uh, that you is didn't always. Know that? I mean, I I know I work on it, but usually that's not what people. I mean, it's rarely what people say when they come up to me. Oh, that's yeah. what people talk about all the. T- yeah. I'm so confused. That's what we say behind it. your back? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that's but I know that people do ask you, how do you get? How do how do you write beautiful prose? What what do you say when people ask you that? What I said just today was, boy, I don't know how I would teach that (laughs) because it comes very intuitively to me. And so for it to get better and better, I just sort of go over it again and again. And each time I tweak and I tweak and I tweak and it's like tumbling a rock in a tumbler and it gets smoother and smoother and smoother until it's done. Uh, But that's not advice that can be followed. So one of the things that I have found, because it's, because I I come at it from theater and similarly, I run into this issue when, when people ask me about dialogue, how do you do dialogue, which is, and dialogue is, um, is one of those places where the words are like the word, you know, you're telling a story. So the words are always important, but dialogue specifically, because it's often carrying even more, you have to be very concise with it. But similarly, it came so, super easy to me. And it took me forever to figure out how to teach it. And I wound up having to reverse engineer what I do as a narrator. Mm. Because my job as a narrator is to take the words that are on the page and um, and make them, make them into sounds. And writing developed to convey the spoken language, right? So what I'm looking for with that, what it's taught me, um, are the things that sound good, the things that play smoothly. Um, the And it's a lot about uh, repetitions. What I find is that if you use repetition with intention, it will draw attention to something and it'll point it at the thing you want people to look at. But when you don't use it with intention when it's an accidental repetition, the repetition is always going to catch the reader's attention Mm. and it'll drag them in the wrong direction. And that's the thing where you, it's, 
not quite having a piece of deja vu with the thing, but it, it, it'll it pop you out of the story just a little bit. And sometimes that repetition is a word, and those are easy to spot, and sometimes it's a collection of sounds. Sometimes it's a concept, but often that that's the thing that I'm looking for, making sure that those those repetitions are, are where I want them to be. Um, and then one of the other things that I look for uh, are ambiguities. Words or phrases or concepts that could go either way and aren't doing so on purpose. You know, like um, one of the examples that I use sometimes uh, when I'm, I'm talking to people about it is uh, this, this thing. Uh, there's a compilation video of um, in, in movies people saying, you just don't get it, do you? <laughs> I and that. I know there's a <laughs> compilation video of person after person after person in completely different films saying, you just don't get it, do you? And uh, and that's that's lazy writing. And it's it's ambiguous because it's like, what don't you get? And what why? Why don't you get it? Um, but then you look at Blade Runner and Rutger Hauer's famous speech, you know, uh. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe hmm. like that's. That is, you just don't get it, yeah. do you? But it's it's getting, it's making it specific. It's removing the ambiguity and the repetitions. There are all very deliberate. This beautiful rhythmic flow. And that's really interesting because you're coming at this from a conceptual. As soon as this topic got brought up, I immediately thought of the sound of language because I focus that way a lot. But. You know, what you're talking about is something that I also do. I I love the term lazy writing. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I find increasingly galling as I watch more TV. Um, And I actually hear it reflected in my son's speech now that he gets to watch more TV is he is emulating the lazy writing that he has heard. Depressing. Oh, it's super depressing, which is one of the reasons I've tried to keep him away from from bad media is it is. It homogenizes his beautifully original speech, um, and that's what it does to everyone. So, I, first, I'll say, you know, if you want to do good word do, then you know, listen to good word doers. You know, like absorb it in a meaningful way that, like, it sticks to you. And sometimes that's just like, you know, uh, for me, I read uh, Peter Beagle's *The Last Unicorn*. Like, uh, or, or I read Shakespeare. Mm. Like, oh, some Shakespeare. Problem is, I I am so sticky. I'm such a mimic that if I read a Shakespeare play, I will have to fight to not write and speak in iambic pentameter, especially if I get a couple of drinks in me. Um, <laughs> so good word do sticks to you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sometimes, yes. So, like, that is a trick that I could recommend is, like, if you read enough of something, it it, it kind of gets in you. That's exactly the way I wrote the Glamorous Histories, yeah. is that I would read a chapter of Jane Austen and then I would write a chapter. Wow. Um, because that, because I, I was using it as a conscious upload of her language. Actually, that's a trick that I use in my own stuff if I've been away a while or even just to maintain consistency is I read the previous chapter before I start writing or, or drafting a new chapter. You do that, don't you, Dan? 
Yes, I will always start each day's work by、uh, reading what I wrote yesterday to kind of get myself up to speed before I step out of the moving car, so I can. And by the time <laughs> by the time you get to the end, I'm usually already tweaking and fiddling, and so、mm-hmm. I'm already writing by the、exactly. time I hit the end, and then、I'm, I've got momentum. Yeah, and then that that also makes the. First draft a little cleaner because it's kind of been cleaned up as you go. Exactly, and the tone is easier to match because you've kind of, or at least I tend to have my head in it.、Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to pause here if we can. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Hundred and Fifty. Then. Place a five-dollar wager on any sport. You'll receive one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See betmgm.com for terms. Twenty-one plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call one eight hundred GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun—yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the Fileo fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. For our thing of the week, it is not a book this time. It is a podcast. What are you going to recommend for us? I would really love to recommend to you、uh, the One Shot Podcast Network. Now, it's a group of podcasts, and they all deal with gaming in some way. But what I have really come to love over the last year is listening to a lot of comedians and actors and game players get together, and effectively, what they're doing is collaborative improvisational storytelling. Um, they have、uh, an ongoing series called Campaign. There was a hundred episodes of like a a Star Trek theme podcast, and the current one that they're doing, where I think they're about thirty episodes in, is an original world called Skyjacks that is inspired by the Decemberists' music.、Oh, wow. And oh, it's so good, guys! It's so good.、Um, But also the One Shot Podcast Network itself—they do a bunch of one shot games, and like I came in and I played a game called Kids on Bikes, and it's、oh, that's, the, that's the, a the, good game. The,、oh, it's amazing, and it's based off like the eighties, like ET and Goonies, and the system. James Damato runs it, and he runs a lot of these games, and you can go in and see like what they're doing. This year is especially interesting because they. Uh, James has decided to feature only、um, games designed by not white dudes.、Mm. Um, he is an amazing guy, an incredible storyteller, and I've learned a lot about gaming and narrative just by listening to the podcast. Cool, and that is called One Shot. 
the One Shot Podcast Network, which contains many shows, including Neo Scum, One Shot Campaign, and some others that I'm embarrassed that I can't remember off the top of my awesome. head. Awesome. So go listen to that. We will link to it in the liner notes as well. Now, I've got a great listener question that I'm going to throw out and then immediately provide my own answer for it because <laughs> I've got a really good answer to this one. Someone asks, uh, how do you add density to your sentences without going purple? Purple prose is something that we want to avoid that if you've ever read an AP English essay, you've seen, you know, they're just trying to cram so much brilliance into there. Um, my solution to this is actually you add density to something not by adding things to it, by, but by taking out the unnecessary things. Think of this as you are cooking your writing on low heat so that it reduces down. And what you're left with is just as much flavor as possible. Um, earlier, Pat was telling a story about how he revises by trimming something and then leaving it and coming back and then trimming it down until, what was it you said, that someday you'll be left with just 12 words that are so intense they can kill a person. <laughs> and what, what I loved about that story is that that's exactly what the poet Ezra Pound did. He had an experience where he, was, uh, he went into the metro in Paris and just for, for whatever reason had this profound experience looking at faces in there. And he wrote this giant thing. It was this multi-page essay trying to recreate that emotion that he had. And he was like, no, this is too much. And he kept cutting it down. And he ended up with a poem called Faces in the Metro, which I'm going to tell you right now. The apparition of these faces in a crowd petals on a wet black bough. I remember that. Just I've heard yeah. that before. Cutting out the extraneous stuff until he's left with just this one powerful emotion adds so much density to it because you don't have any filler. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I have a, a similar kind of relationship with Ray Bradbury's writing mm. um, because it's, you know, it, what, he's, what I love are his short stories. And, and the way he plays with language. Um, and there's a, a piece that I use when I'm teaching uh, narration, which was, again, one of those things where I, I'm like, I know this works. Why does this work? So I'm just going to re read a, a little bit to you. And this is from uh, The Fruit at the Bottom of the Bowl. Uh, William Acton rose to his feet. The clock on the mantel ticked midnight. He looked at his fingers, and he looked at the large room around him, and he looked at the man lying on the floor. William Acton, whose fingers had stroked typewriter keys and made love and fried ham and eggs for early breakfasts, had now accomplished a murder with those same ten world fingers. And it's like, it's just, it's so beautiful. But the, the thing about it, and we'll put this in the liner notes so you can look at it, there's that, that repetition that I'm talking yeah, about. Mm -hmm. You know, he uses, he looked at his fingers. He looked at the large room around him. He looked at the man lying on the floor. It's like, this is a normal thing. This is a normal thing. This is not a normal <laughs> thing. And, and one of the things that he's doing there, when you look at it, is he's adding modifiers, but he's adding modifiers just to the things he wants you to pay attention to. You know, the first it's he looks at his fingers and he doesn't give you any modifiers. He doesn't give you any modifiers to feet, to, you know, the mantle, none of that. Looked at his fingers. Then he looked at the large room. 
gives you a little bit more emphasis. And then he looked at the man lying on the floor, like lying on the floor. It's not purple prose. Mm-hmm. It's just, just adding that little bit and it's making it more specific and it's pointing you at it just by lingering on it. And then he comes back to the fingers again because those actually, it's like these, this, I, these are the things that did that. And everything in that sentence about stroking the typewriter keys and the hand, it's all about these were normal and I've done this other thing with them. And I, and I think it's just beautiful, but it is, it's, it's that layering and that deliberate choice about what things am I going to emphasize. And it's not about, let me add more adjectives, but it's about pointing. It's, it's also, and Bradbury is so good at this, he's extraordinarily lean. Yes. Um, it's just so clean. Um, Robert Bly once said, he's a, a, an American poet, um, he was on stage, and I saw a recording of it, and he said, I think a person could be an amazing poet even if they – he goes, you don't need more words. You don't need fancy words. He goes, if you knew 25 words perfectly, you could be a poet. And and that was really interesting to me. And it's the sort of – in some ways, this is kind of a wankery statement, mm-hmm. you know? But I think he's pointing towards a truth um, and – that is, like, you don't need to get fancy. Now, I think there's a space for fancy. And sometimes a perfect word is perfect. But a lot of times the perfect word is the less perfect word that everyone knows. Mm-hmm. My my approach to this is uh, the, Bradbury, the Bradbury piece. Um, what is... What is the reader to be left with? Well, the reader is supposed to be left with the horror of having committed a murder and staring down at one's own hands and realizing that you are the murder weapon. Or at least that's what I got out of it. Other readers may get other things, but that's what I got. You can get that, sort of, by telling the reader exactly what they are supposed to feel. Mm. He stared down at his hands and was horrified that these were now murder weapons, okay? <laughs> and that is really, really lean, but I've been very literal and told you exactly what to feel. Um, purple prose is when you have words in there that are not working towards giving us that emotion. They are working towards demonstrating to us that you you Own have thesaurus. memorized the thesaurus. <laughs> um, and, and so... A great many times I will I will sit back and look at a paragraph and ask myself, what is the emotional output of this paragraph supposed to be? How do I get there? How do I get there fastest? Well, I get there fastest by being very literal, and that's actually not the most effective. How do I get there in an order in which it's the most effective? What are the pieces of information I want to give? And that's where I think the the Bradbury piece becomes a tutorial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where we are looking at, we are identifying the murder weapons, but not yet. We're just looking at them. And then we're describing that there has been a murder. And then we are context we are recontextualizing the hands. 
And by describing it in that way, it suddenly sounds very non-poetic and very mechanical and very soup can. But when you sit down to do this, when you sit down with that recipe, if you will, you know, I'm headed for this emotion and these are the beats I want to hit. That's the point at which, at which for me, I, I can no longer teach it. I can no longer describe it because I have to have done it 200 times in order to have any sense of how this is going to work. It's, it's a muscle memory thing. And I think, you know, it, for some people it's easier. For some people it's harder. The same that plot and character dialogue. Um, I, I always come back to sound as, because like, I, I love the plain, or rather the simplicity of the concepts that Bradbury's talking about there are great because like, who knows ham? Mm -hmm. Everybody knows ham. I can, it's, it's, it's good. You know, like this isn't fancy. It's not elaborate. Um, these are, are simple, solid, real things. Um, um, now it, he could get florid, he could get fancy, but, and honestly, I see that in a lot of like first time books mm -hmm. where they, they, they're describing the breakfast somebody sits down to, but authors like Bradbury, it's almost like everything he puts on the page is an icon with roots down to the heart of the world. Um, and like, there's just nobody like Bradbury, no. you know, nobody did what he does or does what he did. Um, but um, like Robert Frost, you know, and not to bring up another white guy, but Frost, like, you know, uh, Seuss doesn't get credit for his mastery of language because what most people know about Seuss is his kind of thumpy, you know, heavy-handed sing-songy kid books, which, by the way, are extremely hard to pull off. Yeah. And you could not do it even though you feel like you could. But he wrote a book called um, The Tough Coughs As He Plows the Dough, which it's hard to understand how brilliant that title is until you look at it in print because all the words look the same and they're all pronounced differently. Dude was like deep in the paint in his understanding of how words do. Um, but like same thing with Frost. Frost wrote consistent, beautiful, iambic language and you would never know, you know? And he would do it in dialogue. Some of his longer unknown, like never, never cited, never read poems are pages and pages of long of people having a conversation and you don't realize you're reading iambic anything. And it's because it's perfectly natural and perfectly flawless, which means he sweat blood into it. Um, I think Frost also wrote um, The Old Dog Barks Backwards Without Getting Up. I Can Remember When He Was a Pup. And it's amazing uh, because what he's doing is playing with metrical feet. Yeah. Um, the old dog barks backwards is a series of words that you must say in stokey and single metrical feet uh, because of just how you, you can't make those flip trippingly off your tongue. Um, and then I think the second line um, are all dactyls. They go da 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 one, two, three, one, two, three. Um, and I can remember when he was a pup. 
they're 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 frolicking. They sound mm-hmm. like a ferret running, you know. Um, and it's things like that that I think of, and that I have a particular fondness for, because the words always have to go through the brain, but sounds will start will strike you straight in the heart, and. I get I can get if I can get past your brain into your heart, then I've won as a writer. And it's like way easier to shortcut around the brain because our brains are really messy and, and complicated. And often not very bright. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so like uh poets like uh Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, who would write things so beautiful that I could not understand them. Um, like I met this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of the daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn drawn falcon. And you're like, what are you even doing? What are you talking? That is beautiful. I don't know what you just said. (laughs) Um, And see, that's, I don't know if that's purple. It's close to purple. But like, if you can figure out how he did that and do a piece of it, Mm -hmm. you get 15% of that in your prose and you can have a lyricism that will put your hand around somebody's heart in a way that the best analogy in the world never could. Yeah. This is has been a wonderful discussion, and I'm glad we ended on poetry because that is our homework for you, is just to go out and read poetry. We've been reciting some of our favorites. We will put some of our recommendations in the liner notes. But go out and find—and not just one poem, but multiples by several different people— Uh, and people of different backgrounds. Uh, Just read a lot of poetry and see what they're doing and see how you can put that kind of fluidity and grace. Read it until your mouth starts trying to poet. (laughs) Actually, no, one of the things I'm going to suggest is that if you are having difficulty uh, getting poetry, because it is is a different language, it's a different Mm -hmm. form. If you've been reading prose your entire life and you're trying poetry... One of the things to try with it is to read it out loud as part of your homework assignment um, and also to listen to people. And so I'm, I'm going to add a we're going to put some poems in the liner notes that we are, have mentioned or that we're fond of. But I'm going to give you one to start with. Um, and, and that is uh, Gwendolyn Brooks' mm. We Real Cool. Oh, oh man. Yeah. So good. Read it but, off the page, but then I'm sorry. Go yes, ahead. exactly. <laughs> because there is there is audio of her reading it. And so read it on the page, and then you can find the audio to listen to it. And then also, if you are still like, this is difficult for me, there is a video uh, by Manual Cinema, which strangely is a puppet company that I am very fond of. Um, (laughs) Imagine. But they were commissioned by the Poetry Foundation to create a poem, a a visual poem to go with and support the... uh, recording of Gwendolyn Brooks reading We Real Cool. And it's a great way to, to kind of get a sense of, oh, this is what it can do if it is if it is new to you as a form. I heard her do it live. <gasps> I'm yeah. a little bit jealous of you. Yeah. I'm a All lot right. jealous of so, you. So um, go read some poetry, read it to yourself, read it out loud, and just kind of see what you can do with it. And that's your homework. You are out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was recorded by Bert Grimm, mastered by Alex Jackson, with your hosts, Dan Wells, Howard Taylor, Mary Robinette Koal, and special guest, Patrick Rothfuss. 
If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.